Well, today we're going to continue on in our book of Ephesians. Uh, if you got a Bible, we can go to Ephesians chapter three. That's where we're going to be at today. But before we get there, I got to ask you a couple questions. One, do you ever get distracted when you pray? Like, do you ever just find yourself like, first of all, maybe an intro question to that. When you pray, let's see, I want to see the room I'm talking to you. When you pray, like at home, do you pray out loud, actually talking? Or are you one of those people who just kind of pray in your brain? All right. Brain people, pray inside my brain people. Okay, cool. If you actually pray out loud. All right. Okay. That's, that's cool. A little bit about half and half. All right. So are you one of those people, maybe you find yourself getting distracted when you're praying, like you start praying and you're just going, and it's probably harder to get distracted when you're actually praying out loud. Um, but if you are praying in your brain, it's probably easier and you find yourself praying, you're giving God all your stuff. And then you find yourself making a grocery list or you find yourself thinking about how hard would it be to get that pickup truck that I sold in 2004 back and actually restore it. You just think about all sorts of crazy things when you're praying. All right, you get distracted when you pray. If, if, if that's you, you're in good news. Paul gets distracted mid-prayer in the passage that we're in today and it turns out really awesome. Or maybe you're one of those people, you ever find yourself just like telling somebody a story and you're one of those people, it's just natural for you to get caught in a rabbit trail and you just go off on a tangent, all right? Or you're maybe that person who hates it when people do that, right? Somebody starts telling you a story and you're like, man, you're never gonna believe what happened at work today. Well, first of all, we got in a work truck and you're like, speaking of trucks, did you know that the new Ford Raptor is coming out and it's got like 700 horsepower, front and rear locking differential? And you're like, stop. This is a story about what happened at work. I don't need to know about trucks. Well, today what Paul does in this beginning part of chapter three is he starts a prayer, gets distracted and goes on the most righteous, richest, awesome rabbit trail possible. And there is just gold all in these 13 verses that are gonna show us what does it really mean to be one? What does it really mean to be the local church? And it all comes from a rabbit trail. So let's read it. Hopefully by now you're at chapter three. Open your Bible up, Ephesians chapter three. This is what Paul says. He's just got through telling them that they're one in Christ, that they're reconciled. Jew to Gentile is now reconciled. They're one new people in Christ. And then chapter three, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And then you see that dash right there in your Bible, if you're actually reading it, all right? That's where Paul just goes, whoop, and he just gets off on the rabbit trail. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. Doesn't it just sounds like a rabbit trail. In reading this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it is now being revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry which from ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to this eternal purpose, which he accomplished through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, 
not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which is for your glory. All right, let's dive into this. It's a pretty awesome rabbit trail. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible, don't close your Bible yet. Look at verse 14. All right, you there? Go to three then go to 14. For this reason. Now remember, now look at verse one. For this reason, <laughs> Paul jumps right back in in verse 14. We're going, to, we're going to dive into that next week. What Paul is doing is in verse 14, he actually starts his prayer. He, tried to be, he began it in one, and then he went on this tangent, and then he jumps back in in verse 14. And they, you can tell he does because he actually says the exact same thing he said at the beginning of verse one. So let's, let's dive into this uh, awesome, amazing rabbit trail and see what God has for us today. So Ephesians 3.1. This is still what I would consider part of kind of Paul entering into a prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, and the reason there is this, this reason that God has made us one, that Jew and Gentile, and again, some of you, I'm not gonna, I know not everybody's you know, been in church for a long time, so you don't maybe know what those two things mean. So let me explain that a little bit. A Jew is somebody who was part of the Jewish lineage. All right, most of us have heard of Jews before. Um, that's the people who were part of Abraham's lineage. God's kind of chosen people. God had chose them. Uh, it's Moses, Abraham, David, Jewish lineage. And throughout the Jewish lineage, there was prophesied that there was gonna be a coming Messiah. Now, some Jewish people think that Jesus is, in fact, that Messiah. Some Jewish people think that that Messiah is still to come. We, as Christians, we believe Jesus was that Messiah. And that Messiah came not just for Jewish people, but for all people. And the way that kind of the Jewish people would divide out the entire human race was you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And Gentile was just a catch-all for kind of everybody else. So you didn't have to be from a certain region to be a Gentile. A Gentile was just anybody that was not Jewish. And so the reason Paul is writing here is now to say that God has made it not just about one special group of people being in on the deal, but our God, Jesus, when he came to the cross and gave his life, it was for all people. And so he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then we see him kind of hit his rap shell. But let's explain what he's talking about here. First and foremost, how in the world did Paul become a prisoner? And is he just using metaphors right here or is Paul actually a prisoner? Well, Paul is actually a prisoner. And here's how this happened. Paul started out as a guy who was called a Pharisee. Pharisee was a very religious sect of Jewish people who studied the law, the whole Septuagint, which is basically, if you look at the first five books of your Bible, those were guys who had that whole first five books of your Bible. It's a lot of pages. They had all that memorized. They knew the law to the T, to every I and cross T. They knew it. And they made sure that people kept it. And they were looked at as the most righteous people you could have. The most righteous person you could be was a Pharisee. And Paul was on the top of the top. He was the cream of the crop of Pharisees. And around the same time, this guy, Jesus, comes on the scene. And Jesus comes and, and this thing that is the local church begins to be birthed. Around that same time, Paul happens to be staying there with a group of other Jewish people, Jewish religious leaders. And remember, these are the ones who primarily put Jesus on trial. They, they hated what Jesus was teaching. They hated what was going on with Jesus. Paul was part of the group of guys who as somebody is proclaiming Christ, or another Jewish person is trying to help them and the whole crowd there know really who Jesus is and how all the things in the Old Testament point to Jesus really being the Messiah. It makes the Jewish people, especially the Jewish religious leaders, incredibly angry. And they go, we're killing this guy right now. They all take off their outer garments and they hand them to a young up and coming leader named Saul. 
And Saul stands by holding the coats so that they could pick up bigger rocks and throw faster rocks to smash into the pavement, the head of the first Christian martyr, martyr named Stephen. And Paul stands by. And this, this guy who his name at that point was still Saul, he wants to snuff out this whole movement that is Christianity. This whole movement is this following after Jesus. He believes that there's no way that this Jesus is actually the Messiah. And he actually goes and he gets permission to go on a, a missionary journey, so to speak, to snuff out Christians. And his whole goal is to capture these Christians and put them in prison. And he's on his way to do that. He goes and he's on this road called Damascus and God meets him there on the road to Damascus, knocks him off of his donkey and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He blinds him and Jesus radically transforms his life. He goes from persecuting Christians and wanting to put Christians in prison to becoming one who goes and plants churches all around the Mediterranean, churches primarily that are for Gentile people, anybody who's not Jewish. So this guy who is going and putting uh, his whole life goal, life mission, his vision board, Christians in prison. Now writes to the church in Ephesus and look what he identifies himself as, a prisoner of Christ. Only God can do that with a story. And I hope that irony is not missed on you there. So he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now listen to this. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, which is crazy in and of itself because he's chained to a big Italian dude in, in Roman prison right here in this moment. And you would think he said, hey, I'm Paul, I'm in prison because of Rome. He goes, no, 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 no. God is sovereign over all this. He knows what he's doing. I'm a prisoner of Christ. If Christ didn't want me to be here, I wouldn't be here. He's showing the church in Ephesus the perspective on pain that is necessary to get the most out of it. And to realize that Christ is sovereign over all. And I'm not gonna in the midst of the pain that I experience, Yes, it may be painful, but every pain moment that I experience is a new opportunity for Jesus to reveal his grace to me in a new way. And Paul understands that. And he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And then he says this, this is kind of weird. On behalf of you Gentiles, which hold up, stop, wait a minute. What do you mean by that on behalf of us? You're here, is, is, are, like, are you the Ephesian Christian who's reading that going, Paul, are you saying this is our fault? Like I didn't, I didn't, you know, you were the one who kept running your mouth about this Jesus thing. Like, that's why you're in there. Like, hey, oh, me, it's not my fault, Paul. Well, here's what happened. If you want to learn a little bit more about this, you can go to Acts chapter 20, 21, 22. You can see all when all this transpires. So Paul, he goes and plants a church in Ephesus. And he goes, he's doing all that stuff out there. And somewhere along the way, he picks up a traveling companion named Trophius. Again, you pregnant ladies out there, Trophius, great baby name. Picks up this guy named Trophius. And he's traveling with Paul. And Paul, they go back to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a place where Jesus got killed. So it's not the most ripe environment for Christianity at this point, right? They just killed Christ. Not a good place to be a Christian. Paul says, I want to go back there. I want to keep preaching this message that is the gospel. I want these people to know that Jesus is who he says he is. And he goes there and he goes with Trophius. Now, the religious leaders, you can see this in Acts 21, the religious leaders, they think that Paul is bringing Trophius into the temple. Now, if you remember back from last week, that was a big no-no. The only people who were allowed to be in the temple were Jewish people, specifically Jewish men were the only ones who were allowed to even enter into the temple. If you were a Gentile, which is anything other than a Jew, you could just get in this big outer court. And so they already don't like Paul because he's essentially just a big giant traitor to them. And he's going against the cause. So they look at him as a traitor, someone who rebelled against the one true God and is now following after this Jesus character. And not only that, because they know that Paul is hanging with Trophius, 
they make up this lie that Paul is bringing Trophius into the temple, which again, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but that's a huge deal. And that was something that was deemed punishable by death to Paul and death to Trophius for doing that. Now, guess where Trophius is from? Where his actual hometown is? Ephesus. So when Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, he means that literally. He's not saying, I'm just doing this because I want to reach you guys. He's going, no, they literally threw me in prison because I took one of your guys and they made up this lie that I was bringing him into the temple. And I'm literally here because I'm trying to reach you. I'm trying to show the gospel to you. So what happens is this whole group of Roman, or this, this whole group of Jewish people there with Paul, as he's you know, getting kind of kicked and drug out of the temple, they just start this big giant riot. Now, luckily Rome steps in, there's Roman centurions and soldiers, and they see this guy just getting his tail whooped there by this angry mob. They step in, rescue Paul out, and they're like, why is everybody fighting? What's going on? Chill out. Long story short, the Jews are like, he needs to go to trial. He should be killed for what he did. Paul goes, hold up, wait a minute. I'm a Roman citizen. The Jews can't try me. I need to go to Rome. And so what the Romans do is they put Paul in chains and they say, you want Caesar? We'll give you Caesar. And Paul gets put on a boat, shipped out to Rome. The whole entire time, he's chained to a Roman soldier. He's in prison. And while he's in prison, he writes them this letter. And I think he's starting out this first verse, like trying to explain to them what's going on and trying to preach to them and, and persuade them into a life that can handle suffering the right way. He's trying to help them understand the church. And then like something happens there at the end of that verse where it's like he almost goes, eh, I might need to explain myself a little bit there. Because <laughs> he just got through saying, hey, I'm a prisoner of Christ because of you. Which if I just like, if I said that at my interview to be the lead pastor here, you'd be like, well, you need to explain that for a little bit. Like, hold on, that's not making a whole lot of sense. And so we see him hit this rabbit trail. And he says, oh wait, uh, da, da, da. assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's going again, hopefully you've heard who I am and that the whole thing that God has been up to is making it so that I can be one who brings the gospel to you. All right, track with us here. So that you could see how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. Now, again, there's that word mystery and that keeps showing up and it's kind of the most recurring thing here. This mystery that he's talking about is not like what me and you think of when we think mystery. He, when he says mystery, he's not talking about that show where, you know, like Scooby-Doo when you were a kid and you kind of like, you're like halfway through and you're at that like third commercial and you're like, I think it's the professor. Like I'm told, I'm, I think it, it's obviously not a, a Frankenstein. It's, it's, it's somebody dressed up. And when we pull the mask off, everybody kind of guesses who it's going to be, right? He's not talking about that kind of mystery. He's talking about something that despite your best cognitive attempts to be able to understand something or whatever thing that you could investigate to the nth degree, he's saying there's no way at all you could have ever learned this if it was not from revelation. And what he means by that is like divine revelation. If God doesn't show this to you, there's no way you come to this conclusion. There's no way any of us would have came to this conclusion. He says, I've already written to you briefly about that. And that's him referencing back to the first couple of chapters. He says, now, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which let's lean into that right there for a second, because we got to know this And this. I'm telling you, you may be sitting here like this makes no sense for my own real life. It is lean in. He says, my job, because everybody in this room, like, unless you're a Jew, like, this is huge for you. 
Paul says, my job is to show you Gentiles the mystery of Christ. Now you may be going, what in the world is this mystery of Christ? Well, we've already talked about it actually. In verse nine of chapter one, Paul talks about the mystery of God's will. And he explains what all of that is through the rest of the whole entire thing. And it's just this big grenade of God's grace. We put this together to kind of make it seem like it actually makes some sense and kind of flows in some chronological order. So this whole thing right here is the gospel. This is the mystery of God's will. This is the mystery of Christ Jesus. And it starts out like this. If you want to see this, you can go just to chapter one. Chapter one, verse three, God is a father. He loves and cares for his people. He loves and cares for kids. He's not just a God out there in outer space who's just making things. He's not just a a cosmic watchmaker who just sets this thing up and says, okay, you guys don't mess it up. He's a father that loves and cares. And this father, he chose before the world began to predestine us as kids for adoption so that we would be his own. He determined that everybody who put their faith and trust in his son, they could be part of this family that he was creating. The problem is, the people he wanted in this family, they had sin, they had trespasses, they had things that they had done wrong. They rebelled against this family. They ran away from this family. They said, I'd rather do my rules. I don't want that father. I'd rather be my own provider and protector because my rules are better than his. But this God still, and you can see this in verse nine, chapter one, this God still had a plan. And his plan was that they could be forgiven, but that forgiveness would come from the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus. And that blood would not just bring freedom, that blood would bring redemption. It would redeem them. It would restore the life that they were supposed to have had so that they could be adopted as kids, brought back into the family. Now, in faith, through the blood, they could truly be children, but not children just kind of punished to the basement so that they can have retribution for their sins, but holy and blameless children who could stand before the Father in love, in unity, and in care before him. And on top of that, they could be before that father, fully united in him for the fullness of time. That God, this this God, this father, this mystery of God's will is that he loves us so much that we will spend eternity. It will take all of eternity for him to pour out and explain and express the love that he has for me and for you. And in that, we would be able to experience every spiritual blessing. And this, this whole thing is his lavish grace upon all of us. And this whole thing, whole thing up there, to sum all of this up, this is the gospel. This is the mystery of Christ. And the other side of this coin is that this isn't just for a certain group of people who do good things. This isn't just for Jewish people. He's saying this, this mystery of God's will, this thing that is the gospel, this is for everyone. Everyone. Who would want in on this? This is for everyone. So he says, this is this mystery. So whenever you see that, as you're reading through Ephesians, this mystery, this is what it is. It's a mystery of his will, that Jew and Gentile would be one, and this would be their story. And he goes to verse five. Now this mystery, that whole thing I just showed you, that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles. He's kind of talking about himself. God's were chosen to reveal this to me. And he's done this by the spirit. Because by the mind, by the heart of man, this mystery, that thing I just showed you, there's no way that we ever come to that conclusion. Here's why. We would think that the mystery, and this is why he calls it a mystery, we would think that the gospel would be, or the way I would get salvation would be the 10 commandments. If I 
I, I, I love God. I don't tell lies. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't covet. I don't do these things. Then I'll get to God. Or we think the way I get salvation, the way the mystery of God, the way that I will be able to, to be saved from my sinful life, the way I'll be able to get to heaven is to, to live Jesus's golden rule, to treat others the way I want to be treated. See, those would make a lot of sense. But the reason he calls the gospel a mystery is because it's the last thing you would expect. This whole thing right here, like, uh, well, there it go. Oh, it's not there. Sorry. I'll go backwards. Doom, doom, doom. This, nobody expects this. Nobody expects that there would be this God in the cosmos who is also a father who would say, you couldn't do it. I'm going to do it for you. That's the thing that makes Christianity different than any other world religion where every other religion says, you do good, get to God. God says, you can't do good. I'm coming to you. We're trading places. And that's what makes this thing that is Christianity so different. So the spirit has revealed this to us. And then verse six, it says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, which means they have by the blood of Christ, right to all of the things that are made available to a child of God. Again, if God is your daddy, you got a good inheritance coming your way. And he says, you're members of the same body, which means there's not just Jews out there and then we're over here as Gentiles. He says, no, we're all one now. We're one, we're one in him and we're a body. That means we have different parts and different parts do different things. And we talked about this already before. Some of you are gallbladders, some of you are hands, some of you are feet, some of you are arms, some of you are triceps. Like everybody has a place to play. And he says, you're part of the same body and you're partakers of the promise. I love that language. You're partakers of the promise. Next time somebody starts to think about like, I mean, you have a rough day. Just know I'm partaker in the promise. It goes back into a little bit of what we sang about in the song right before uh, we saw the video in the baptism. It's like all, the, all God's promises are yes and amen. Well, what are God's promises? He promises to love us. He promises to keep us. He promises to guide us. He promises that, that we will not be left as strangers and orphans, that we are no longer strangers, aliens, but we've been brought in to be a part of a family. He says, this is what you're in on now. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's talk about that word gospel because it shows up again right here in verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me by the working of his power. Now, gospel, let's just camp out there for a second. That one kind of gets messed up in Southern culture, right? Because like you can have a gospel singing. You can... Southern gospel is a genre of music. And again, we're a pretty diverse church. When I say gospel or say like, this is a gospel church to somebody who is African-American, that sounds and looks differently than if you say this is gospel to a white person, right? But we think different things. This is a gospel song. <laughs> if you're okay, here, here let's, let's, let's have fun. Um, Again, we're a diverse church. We just got to lean into it a little bit, okay? I want you to close your eyes and hear a gospel song. Okay? Now, if you're an African-American person, you're hearing a different song than all of your white brothers and sisters. I guarantee it. All right? Let's just be honest. Okay? So we got to figure out what in, this, what in the world this word means, gospel, because we've kind of hijacked that term and made it, a, made it a genre of music. We've made it like a type of things. Well, let's, let's pause and let's lean to what we're actually talking about here in this word gospel. This is what it actually means. <laughs> let's have a Greek, uh, Greek lesson here. 
is this word. Let's try it. Let's try it together. All right. I broke it into these things for us. I don't know what this is called. Uh, my wife's a teacher, not me. Um, let's, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, you and gel e on. All right. Let's try to do it a little bit. We're going to do it medium speed, then fast speed. Okay. You and jelly on fast speed. You and jelly on. All right. You're pretty good, man. Round of applause. Way to go, guys. So this is this word and it means good news. So gospel means good news. Gospel is not a genre. The word euangelion, I think I did that right. A little country in there. It means this is the good news of God. This is the good news of what God has done and is doing in us and through us. It's God's good news. Now, this word euangelion, if you were just like a Greek student, like if you just lived back then, you would not find this in any of your books, your newspaper. You would only use this in street language. It's a type of Greek called Koine Greek, which it just means it's like street Greek. And it was referred to almost as news that was too good to be true. It was almost a euphemism. And so when Paul starts to throw these words out there, people are hearing this and he's saying, because of the too good to be true news that is Jesus, that actually is true. That's what he's talking about when he's explaining this word gospel. And again, what is the gospel? The gospel is this. This is the gospel. To sum the gospel up in in four words, Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. And Paul's saying, I have come to show this mystery that is the gospel to you. Verse eight, he says to me, this has been my job. He's done this to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. To which you hear that and you go, Paul, for real? Like, you're pretty good, man. Like, raise your hand if you can think of at least three people who are less of a saint than Paul. Raise your hand if you can think of at least three who are less of a saint than the apostle Paul. That should be everybody. Okay, just point down your row, like that one, that one, and that one. (laughs) And because we see this and go, what are you doing there, Paul? Like, bro, you're Paul, man. Planting churches, getting shipwrecked, getting bit by poisonous snakes and just shaking them off like Taylor Swift out here, man. Like, what are you doing saying that you're the least of all the apostles? Well, here's what he's doing. He's trying to explain to us that the more you look at Jesus, the more you see Christ for truly who he is, the more you'll realize two things, that you are more wicked and wretched of a sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And then two, you will realize that you are more loved than you ever dared to dream or hope by that same Jesus. And so when he says, I am the least of the saints, some of what he's saying there in humility, he's saying, I'm the last person that you would ever expect that would be here. Remember, my whole life mission was to go put Christians in prison. And here I am, a in-prison Christian, writing to you to make more Christians. He's like, look what God did. I'm the least of you. I, this is wild. And he's, he's explaining this to them. He says, this grace given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He said, this is, this is what God's called me to do. And through, and through that, to bring light for everyone, what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he's saying, this has been God's plan from all along. And he is just now 
through what's happening right now in this little, this little pot right here in the whole Mediterranean, this gospel is going to spread right here from cities like Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth. And it's going to impact the world so much so that in other little cities like Ola and Jackson and Stockbridge and Eagles Landing, there's going to be crazy things that pop up all over the place called local churches. And it's going to spread from right here in this little city called Ephesus all the way into a little bitty city, not really a little bitty anymore, called McDonough. And this light for everyone is you. When you see that everyone, if you've got your own Bible, you're okay with writing in it. Just write your name out beside that. Paul had you in mind when the Holy Spirit led him to write those words because you're a Gentile who's a part of that plan that God was beginning to start in him. Verse 10, it's my favorite one. We'll spend the rest of our time hanging out here. He says, he did all of that. He made me a minister. He helped me reveal this revelation to you, this mystery to you of the Jew being connected to Gentile all under this giant umbrella that is the gospel. And he says, all of that happened. This is where lean in, pay attention. All that happened so that, so here's why all of that happened. Here's why I got the mystery. So that through the church, uh uh-oh, that's us. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let me just be really frank with you guys. All throughout this entire past, uh, going through Ephesians, as I've been preaching through this, you know, word by word, verse by verse, there hasn't been a, a message when I knew I was preaching on a certain like section of, of, you know, the scripture that I was like, oh man, I'm really not looking forward to that this week. Every single week it was like, man, like, I can't wait to tell them about that. That's going to be so awesome. I'll just nerd out on stuff and I had to make sure I wasn't nerding out too much. Um, but then I got to this passage, honestly, like verses, chapter three, verses one through 13. And it was the first time through this whole series. I was like, ah, if I'm going to preach a dud, it's going to be this week. Now, some of you are going last week was and the week before that. <laughs> Cause I, I just didn't know what, like, I was like, eh, he's kind of repeating himself. You know what? I don't get what's going on here. And then I really begin to understand what he's saying in verse 10 and it changed everything. So let's, let's lean into this. First of all, he says, so that through the church. Now, again, that word church is another thing that's been hijacked. And we talk, well, my church has this out. My, my, my church, the church I came from has this. My, the, well, the church down the road, they don't, they don't let women wear pants. Well, the church over there, they got this, this guy who sings really good. Or the church over there, we, we think the church is just this thing you go to on Sundays. And so this word's kind of been hijacked. So let's understand what it really originally meant. And to do that, again, don't be afraid of understanding what the Bible was actually written in and Paul's original purpose in that. So when he says this word church, it's this word ecclesia. That's an easy one, okay? Ecclesia. We can all say that together on three. One, two, three. Ecclesia. That's what you and I are. And what this word means is not a cool hangout for Christians on Sunday. The word church, the word ecclesia means the called out from. It's actually this compound word that just means the called and out from. That's what it means to be the church. It means to be the called out from. And so what this meant, if you were a Jew, that means I was called out from my religiosity. I was called out from trying to obey all these rules, all these commandments, and that being a good person would make me to God. He's called me out of my Judaism into Christianity. He's called me out of my religion and into this relationship. And if you're a Gentile hearing him say this, that you are the church, you're the called out ones. It's saying I was called out of my rebellion, my sensual lifestyle that just did what I wanted with my body, that did the things that I wanted to with my tongues, with my money, with all these other types of things. It says now 
now I'm called out from a life of rebellion called into a life of relationship. And so for Jew, he calls him out of religion. For Gentile, he calls him out of rebellion and he calls both of them into a redeemed relationship with Jesus and each other. He says, this is the church and you've been called out from this world. Which I would just lean to us here now and go like, okay, you're not someone who came to church today. If you're in Christ, friends, you are one of the called out ones. And I think somewhere down the line, our definition for what church is got where it was supposed to be the called out ones, it became the ones who look exactly the same. Who talk the same, spend money the same, who drink the same, who eat the same, who divorce at the same rate, who do everything pretty much the same. And I want you to know, if you don't hear from anybody else before you die, at some point, I need you to hear this. Our identity as, a, as the, the church is to be the ones who have been called out from the world. And so if you say you're a part of the church, and you're now a member of the body of Christ. That means you've been called out of your old lifestyle. It means you've been called out of your old ways and called into something new, a new relationship with Jesus. And what this doesn't mean is that we just, you know, go up to LJ and, and build a commune in the middle of the woods and we're like, we're the called out ones and let's just, you know, we're called out. We're not going to live in Atlanta or McDonald or anywhere close to a city. We're just going to get up here and live in our commune and we're going to make our own dress and turn our own butter. That's not what he's saying. What he's after here is saying, I need you to live amongst the people. I need you to live in the heart of the city. I need you to live right there among everybody else. And they should see, they should be able to see that you've been called out of this normal way of living and normal way of acting and that there is something radically different about your life. So much so that you're, you're not someone who's afraid to speak the truth. You're not afraid to, to, to tell things like they are. You're not content with just practicing what we've oftentimes coined uh, relational evangelism, which means I'm, I'm just gonna hope that one day you ask me about Jesus and we'll be friends for 14 years and then something, you know, if I get around to it, I'll tell you about him. You know, I'm gonna hope you say something. If we haven't given them a reason for the hope that they see in us, why we ever expect them to be able to ask us about what's different in us if there is nothing that's different? So he says, Okay, you're this church, you're this ecclesia. You've been called out from this world. So he says, through that church. Now remember this church, it isn't this homogenous group of people who all dress the same, look the same, act the same, vote the same. It's actually like through this church and Paul's definition there to the Ephesians is Jew and Gentile. You think the Republican-Democrat divide is bad? You think a black-white divide is bad? You think a young-old divide is bad? It ain't got nothing on Jew and Gentile divide. Uh, a, a Jewish man, he would go through his list of prayers like this. God, thank you that I'm not a woman. God, thank you that I'm not a slave. And then lastly, God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. That's their divide. And he says... Those two groups of people now, they're this little thing called the church. Unified, but incredibly diverse. Young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, liberal, conservative, all one now. That's my church. 
He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now, some of you are seeing that word manifold, and you're like, I thought that was something on a pickup truck. Like, what are we talking about there? Let's explain what in the world we're after here. The manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold, oh man, it's a, it's a hard Greek word. I'm only going to make me do this one because y'all don't want to have to try to do this one with me. Um, it's long. Pol u kilos. Polupa kilos. Polupa kilos. Yeah, that's it. Polupa kilos. And what it means is it's a compound word. It means diverse or different colors. So track with me here. Go back to the verse. So God, through the church, and this is a church that's incredibly diverse. Stick with me on this. He says, so that through the church, the diverse wisdom of God might be made known. The multicolored wisdom of God might be made known. The multicultural, multidimensional wisdom of God may be known. So shame on us for, for going, no, white church over here, black church over here, rich church over here, poor church over here. We'll, just, we'll be better if we just kind of stay like we are. And God's going, no, 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 no. Hold on a second. My wisdom is diverse. And if the world is gonna know my wisdom, the best place for them to be able to see it is from a diverse church, a church that is multifaceted. That's kind of like looking at a diamond and it looks kind of one way when you look at it through this light and you turn a little bit this way and it looks like something different. And see, he's saying, this diamond that is my church, that is what it is in the hands of God. So that the world, no matter how we turn it, no matter how they look at it, they see how beautiful and magical and amazing it is because of its diversity, not its homogeny. He says that through this diverse church, the manifold, this multicultural, multidimensional, diverse wisdom of God might be made known. Now we hit that may be known and we're like, to the world. We are the world, we are the church. Oh, that's two Sundays in a row for me singing. I don't know why that happened. I need to try out for the band. It's going to be good. I'm going to be one of those pastors now where I start singing in the middle of sermons. I'm not going to do it. So we would think that he would just say, hey, you're a diverse church. Show the world my diverse wisdom so that they can see in you the type of God I am. But he doesn't say that. That doesn't mean that's not true. That doesn't mean that that is not what he actually wants to do. Because I do believe God wants to prove through the church that the way we love each other, despite we looking differently, despite us voting differently, despite us spending money differently or having more money to spend, that the world may look on and go, wow, there's something different. There must be something that unifies them and brings them together. And that is a reality of our existence. But it doesn't stop there. And this is what blew my mind this week. See, in the Old Testament, God was about, and this is Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, God's talking to Moses. He's there on the mountain. He's, he's explaining to them that this, this nation of people that are God's people. He says, if you'll obey my commandments, the other nations will look on and they will glorify me. The Old Testament people of God, if they did good and they were who they were supposed to be, the nations would look on. The seen world would be able to glorify God. But then he comes and he says, okay, doesn't stop there. The New Testament church, here's what's so special about you. Here's what's so special about us. That in Christ, not only will the seen world look on at how we live and how we operate as the local church, also the unseen world of demons and angels. Now, again, I know I'm up in the clouds for some of you right now, all right? And I'm sorry, but I think you can go there. We'll get you a respirator or something when we come back down in a second. So track with me here. The Bible tells us very clearly that all around us, at any given moment of any day, there are unseen spiritual forces. Now, I think both God's angels, 
unseen spiritual forces that God has for good that I think are active in our lives. And what we clearly see through scripture, that there is a spiritual war going on, that there are dark forces against us, that there are demonic forces against us that seek to, to rule this world. And at any given moment, they are, they are unseen, both sides. I think both sides, if you read scripture, they're not fully in on exactly what God the Father's plan is. Especially the dark forces. And so what this verse is saying here is that by the way, the church, us, does life here on earth, it will surprise and make known the wisdom of God to the dark forces around us. Now, again, that's kind of mind-blowing, honestly, to think about that. But the way we live, by the way we do things, we're not just showing to the seen world around us that God is God. We are actually showing to the unseen world around us that God is God. And why in the world would God choose the church to do that? and all of our mess to say that you, you people, you people who say you're part of McDonough Christian Church, by the way you are McDonough Christian Church, you will show demons the wisdom of God. Now, many of you, you never thought about church that way before. So I'll say it again. By the way you come to church, by the way you engage in the church, by the way you participate in this local body that is the church, by the way you overcome differences, by the way you overcome preferences, that actually can show demons the multicultural, diverse wisdom of God. And so think about that the next time you want to go play golf on a Sunday morning. Think about the next time that all this thing that is like being a part of a church becomes optional. Think about that the next time you um, are tired so you don't go to small group. Think about that the next time that you come up with a really good, albeit last minute excuse to bail on your children's ministry commitment. I'm not trying to guilt trip you here. I'm just trying to get you to get God's perspective of what the local church is. For some reason, where he could have sent angels to hold up signs and to fly around on I-75 and show people there's a real, there's a demonic world. Listen and obey God, read your Bible. I mean, if he wanted to, that's what he could have done, guys. Like seriously, like he could have just been flying up and down 75. They got a captive audience, northbound and southbound, just flying all around the interstates. And the demonic forces that are all around us could have gone, okay, yeah, God is real. Man, dang. But instead what God chooses to do is choose to pick people like me and you. So that we as this, this incredibly diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic body of people would actually be able to show not just to the onlooking world around us, but to even the dark forces, demonic forces, that this God is a God full of wisdom. And that wisdom would be that he would make known himself through a body of people like us. Now this has some huge implications for how we do church and what we are as the church. What this means now for us is that we are a new society. And this God that we have, think about it like this. What is war? War is people who should be together fighting against each other, divided out. What is disease? Disease is a body falling apart. What is divorce? It's a marriage falling apart. 
And what our God is after is saying, no, 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 no. I'm not about this world falling apart. I'm not about war, disease, divorce. I'm not about all these negative effects of sins. I'm about putting this thing back together. And the thing that God shows that wants to show to the world and to the dark forces around us and the good forces around us, to everything that's seen and unseen, I want my church to be what gives them a foretaste of how I'm putting everything back together, which makes me just so excited about MCC. Because I look around and I say, man, it's not perfect yet. Don't get me wrong. We still struggle with stuff. We still say stupid things. We still, we don't understand what microaggressions are. We, we, we still put our foot in our mouth. We, we still do a lot of stupid things. Don't get me wrong. But the ingredients are there to show to a world looking on that no, 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 no. Our God is putting things back together. And I can show you because my great granddaddy was in the KKK and her great granddaddy was a black Panther and we're in the same community group. And those types of things can only happen in the local church because that's what God is doing. That's how he moves. He does the things you would least expect because that's his mystery. And so what this means for us is that there's things I could only learn about God if I learn them from you because he's revealed his grace to you in a different way that he's revealed it to me. And there's things that you couldn't learn about God if you didn't learn it from me because of my background and my unique story. And so, man, this is the scary thing. More often than not, God wants to use his local church to be what heals us, restores us, and puts the things that are broken back together. Everybody in this room, you've experienced some sort of brokenness and pain in your life, right? You have sin, you have things that you struggle with. Some of you, maybe it's a marriage thing. And you can get to this place where you go like, You've been fighting for a weekend, a week out, and you come to this weekend, you're like, all right, here's what we'll do. We're just gonna pray. We're gonna pray really hard. We're gonna ask that God would just make us forget all the bad things we've ever said to each other. And that tomorrow morning, we'll wake up and we'll just get along. And you pray that prayer together. You hold hands softly. And then you pray and go to bed. And you wake up to his snoring, angry, still, mad, and nothing's changed. Or you struggle with addiction. It's the same old addiction you've been struggling with for a while. You've tried to kick it. You've had a few good weeks. You've had a few good months. And then you had a couple good months and then you went right back. And the shame and the guilt came like a tsunami immediately after you finished that whether it was a drink, whether it was something online, no matter what it was, the tsunami of shame hit you like a ton of bricks and you find yourself praying things like this. God, take this away from me. Just get it out. Why do I keep struggling with this? Why do I keep doing what I don't wanna do and what I do wanna do, I can't do. And you're struggling. And we pray those prayers and we think those things. And sometimes I I think God is up in heaven. He's just going like, I've made a way for you out of this, son. I made a way for you out of this, daughter. See, like, it, it, honestly, guys, it's kind of silly to read a Bible that tells us over and over again that we will experience healing by the Spirit of God around the people of God. The vessels through which God does his best work is not just from angels flying down and sprinkling Jesus dust on us so that we're not jerks to our husbands and wives. That's not how he operates. 
And so we can continue to pray those last ditch effort prayers to save our marriage or to free us from addiction or fill in your blank. I don't want to be anxious anymore. I don't want to be depressed. I, want, I need a better job. We can do all those things. Or here's a crazy thought. You can take your broken marriage and you can get plugged into a married couple's community group. And listen, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not, just going to be really honest with you. Your first couple of times there, you're going to have to fake it a little bit. Like you're going to have to come in. You're going to kind of be holding hands. Hi. Yeah, <laughs> you fought the whole way. I don't, you know, usually it's the husband, you know, no offense guys, we'll just be honest. I don't want to go to this. I don't want to go to this. It's not that bad. And then you get there and then you, you meet some people and you connect with people. And after a while, you know what happens is you start to realize that you're not the only couple that's fighting about these things. And you find a godly couple in that group. They start to get to know you. The, the wife goes and grabs coffee, confesses some stuff, prays some stuff. You got some more people praying for you. You know, you get about four weeks in, maybe you feel comfortable enough. You know, you, I love it, man. Sometimes, Man, I have people come to our community group and they'll be like week one and they're, they're like, we're on the brink of divorce. And the, and the wife, you can tell that they did not have a conversation that they were gonna share that, that <laughs> night. And you just see, I've seen it with both spouses, their eyes just get this big and they're like, and they just kind of, you can see them start breathing. Yeah. And they just start looking at their shoes, looking at their watch. That's how it happens. But over a little bit of time goes by and what actually begins to happen? The marriage gets better because God worked through his spirit, through the local church to heal something. And then there's, there's the attic. And, you can, and again, God has done this. I've heard stories about this from, from personal people that I actually know. They can say, God, I want to be done with this addiction. I don't, want to, I don't want to crave this anymore. And they wake up the next day and the smell of something is repulsive to them. It makes them want to vomit. But for, I would, I would dare say 99.9% .9 of addicts, that's not their story. There's still a, a craving that's there. It doesn't look repulsive. It, it looks appealing. And you could choose to listen to what the Bible says in James. It says, come to the elders of the church. He, he asked this question. He says, any, any among you sick? Any among you sick? Are you sick of being sick? Are you sick of struggling? He says, come to the elders, confess your sins, confess to them and pray and the healing will happen. And, and, and that's where it does happen. And I think we're crazy. We're crazy to like have all these things that are kind of hurt and wrong with us and, and messed up in us. And to just think that, that God is just gonna magically make them better. And everybody in this room, you wanna be better, right? Like you, you wanna stop struggling with those things. You want freedom. You, you want health. You want those things in your life. Every one of us does. And this is, where I, this is what makes me so hopeful, but also so frustrated about the local church. So much of what you're longing for and looking for can be found here. And, and God is showing us this through his word that this is what I need you to look at church as. Not this box you check off, but your only hope in life. Do you think that the rest of the, do you think that the world is going to show your kids how to, how to make it through adolescence? Good luck. I don't know about you, but like I struggle knowing that I've, I've got to be the only, like even me, I'm, I'm a pastor with, the, I have a degree in the Bible. It terrifies me to know that I may, me and my wife may be the only people, I, I, would, I would never in a million years say I'm good enough with my Bible knowledge to disciple my two boys without the help of a Mr. Craig or a Braylon or a Miss Sonia in their life. That's stupid. Because think about it like this. Let me be real with you. 
how did you get that way? Like, how, how did it happen? Your family, right? You can blame it on them. Let's go ahead and blame it on them. How did it happen? They did it. All right? If you're a racist, you got it from a grandma or grandpa or mom or daddy. More than likely. It's not because of the school. Like, you got it from a family. You got it from the people you were around. If you're misogynistic and you tell bad jokes about girls, women, whatever, like it's probably because you grew up in a home where that happened. You rode in a pickup truck with a dad or you played on a sports team where that little group of people, that's all you guys did. You grew up in a home where there was, there was a liquor cabinet and it was, you know, fair, fair, fair game. And you knew that you could, you know, have a little bit and pour some water back in. And you got that first taste way back then. You opened up a sock drawer and you found a magazine all the things that you want to stop doing, they started, they came from your family. They came from the people you were a part of. And so how stupid is it to go, my family of origin, the people and the culture that I was in, that group is what made me have to start to struggle with this. And your unique struggle, again, you can, whether psychology, sociology, whatever, any psychiatrist will tell you, the things that you're struggling with is birthed out of your family of origin. And so if that's what got it there, how dumb is it to think that I can just go sit in a deer stand and magically get better and just not ever come to church? How dumb is it to think that I'll just, I'll just listen to a podcast online? Now, I, there's some amazing podcasts. You can get preachers that are 12 times better than me on a podcast. I promise you that. But what you cannot get is the community and the healing that can only come through the local church in isolation. You just can't. And so if your family brought this into your life and perpetuated this in your life, then the way you get out of it is a new family, a new group, albeit not perfect, albeit struggling. But our only hope in recovery, our only hope in healing is the connectivity that happens in local gatherings of the local church. And and I'm telling you, if you think that Sunday is just gonna cut it for you, you're wrong. It's good. Don't get me wrong. This is where we gather. Everybody needs three things. You need somebody who is your one, the person you're trying to pray for, you're trying to disciple, and you need a few. These are the people who know your dirty laundry. They know your story. They know what's going on in your life. And you need to know you're a part of a big group. You're a part of something bigger. Everybody needs those three relationships. One that you're seeking, a group of people who are seeking your heart, praying for your heart, places you confess, and then you need to know you're a part of something bigger. And that can be found here. Not because of anything special we're doing, but through Christ. That's where we can all come together. And that's where the world can see that there's something different. And that's where even the unseen world of demons and principalities and dark authorities can look on and go, man, there's something different about this group of people that is a local church. And that's our call. And look, that's, that's what it means to be a church. It's not a country club. It's not a group that we just come in and we go out of. And so if you're not in a community group right now, like there's a next step card in every chair in front of you here. First of all, if you don't know Jesus, you're not in on any of this. Put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Jesus. And then you get entered into the family. And then the way you figure out what is life in this family is you get plugged into serving. You get plugged into getting a community group. If you need mentors, we have that. If you need mental health counseling, we have that. All of those things are are, are intentionally created here within the context of local church so that you grow into this unified yet diverse church that shows to the world the manifold wisdom of God how crazy it would be. The last thing anybody would expect that God would use people like me and you 
to show the world a God like he is. And so as we get ready to come into a time of communion, this is us meeting around that table of a diverse group of people. And here's what I want you to think about. <clears throat> For most of you, the table is a thing. I'll know that we are really starting to tap in being a diverse church. And you'll know that we're really tapping into what does it mean to be a diverse church when our dinner tables look different. Because one thing to go to church with people who look different than you. It's another thing to eat with people who look different than you. It's your house, around your dinner table. And I pray that as you take communion today, you realize that that is God's whole purpose and intentionality is to say, I'm making you one with me so we can be one together so that the whole world would look on and see both the unseen world and the seen world. And they would know that I'm the one true God, the one true way and the one true path to eternal life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love and grace. Move in the hearts of your people. Connect us to you. Pull us out of lives of fear, sin, guilt. And help us to truly long for healing, long for help. I pray that people take those next steps. If they're not connected in a place where they have a group, that they get a group. If they need mental health, that they get counseling. If they need Jesus to find a place where they go and live out the gifts that you've given them and serve your church, this body here that they serve. And as they meet with you today and they take that wafer in their hand that represents your body, I pray that they know that your body was broken so they could be one, one body. And as they drink the juice represents your blood, I pray that we would know that we are now one blood and coursing through the veins of each and every individual in here is blood that is redeemable, blood that is unified and that we can be one in you. Move in us, Jesus, in your name.